I did read of the language of the tentative agreement. It looks like two-tier has been done away with, which is certainly a great thing. For the new fleet, starting January 1st, everything's going to be air-conditioned, including in the back. The back is even worse than the cab. When I was doing the nanny back in the 90s, the business model upon which the old contract is predicated was about longevity for a series. If you had eyeballs, if you had ad dollars, the show would stay on the air. We all got a little piece of the pie up and down the ladder. And to this day, there are people who were guests on the show, who had small parts on the show, a few lines that are still getting residuals from the airings of the nanny in a myriad of different formats that have completely gone away with the advent of streaming. I can't like exactly like send out an, e an email within like the, the company or message people on Teams saying, hey, do you want to unionize? You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. I'm Chris Garlock. On today's show, we've got reports on the tentative contract at UPS from the We Rise Fighting podcast and the Heartland Labor Forum radio show. Then, Fran Drescher explains in very personal terms why Hollywood actors are striking on the SAG-AFTRA podcast. In our final segment, the Alberta Worker podcast returns for its second season with a fascinating conversation with Juan Estevez about his journey from Bogota, Colombia, emigrating to Canada as a child, trying to unionize his workplace, and then running for political office. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Welcome back to another edition of We Rise Fighting Labor podcast. We bring you today's labor news, history, and analysis from the U.S. and around the world. This is a podcast you listen to with your fellow workers organizing on the shop floor. This is a podcast you listen to before walking into your union meeting. As always, I'm Rick Urrutia here with my co-hosts Brian Pfeiffer and guest host Anastasia. Anastasia is a big supporter of the show and often forwards us some of the articles we discuss on here, so we are excited to have her on. And it's been a few weeks since we've been able to record an episode, so today we'll bring you some recent and ongoing labor news. We're going to catch up on news from the Teamsters, the Teamsters, the Teamsters, and then the Teamsters, Teamsters some more because they're all over the news. I happened to come across an article in The Nation yesterday that was written by Jane McAlevey. Uh, Jane McAlevey being a labor journalist, labor organizer, uh, author, consultant. And according to her, her article, it says that the Teamsters have from August 3rd until August 22nd to review the tentative agreement. So let me go ahead and read from that. First, the great stuff. The biggest win in the Teamsters UPS tentative agreement is an end to two-tiered structure of the old contract, which protected long-serving workers' gains in exchange for leaving new hires working on worse terms. This framework, agreed by the Jimmy Hoffa Jr. controlled National Union, has driven employer-inspired strategic wedges and fostered resentment between the long-timers and the ballooning base of newer, younger workers. Ending a two-tiered contract in the company's single largest private sector union agreement is an outstanding achievement. 
So from, from what I'm understanding there, and from the little that I did read of the language of the tentative agreement, it looks like two-tier has been done away with, which is certainly a great thing. But I do want to continue reading this in more depth. And if, you know, that understanding proves otherwise, then we will make mention of it on this show. Uh, the Teamsters also won Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday as a paid holiday for themselves, uh, though they didn't win Juneteenth as a paid holiday, which, you know, just the fact that they, the fact that they put it on there, you know, I think is great news and that more unions should do that. So that's the update on that. Uh, this article by Jane McAlevey also makes reference to this being a five-year contract, which she personally opposes. Um, and I could see, you know, many reasons to oppose a five-year contract, starting with the fact that that's such a long life for a contract and so many things can change, you know, everything from labor law to political context um, within the duration of five years. But here's one thing that she mentioned within that that I would like to put out on this show, because, you know, in case there's anyone negotiating union contracts or is part of a negotiating team ever or anything like that, I think this is useful. So one of the things that she mentioned is that one of the things that the Teamsters could have done or could do is propose wage reopener language or the right to strike um, set after two years or after four years of the contract, basically just allowing the union and the company to reopen the contract and negotiate specific things. I had never heard of that tactic before. It's an interesting one to consider putting it out there for maybe the benefit of people who are listening, um, but that's just something that I found to be interesting in this article. Again, for more information, for more details on the tentative agreement, go to tdu.org. They have the tentative agreement up there by itself and also some analysis of it. Um, hats off to, T to TDU and the Teamsters for, hold for almost bringing it to a strike. We'll see where this ends off. We will keep you updated. Thank you and have a good night, everyone. Take care. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. Solidarity rocks. Solidarity rocks. Solidarity rocks. Solidarity rocks. Hand in hand we make up. And that means it's time for Washington Window on Workers. And with us on the phone from Washington, D.C., is Mark Grunberg. Hi, Mark. Hi, Judy. Uh, happy end of July, if you will. So, uh, happy heat wave. Huh. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Right. It's pretty hot here. Um, but we have a hot contract to talk about because you did a pretty thorough analysis of the Teamster UPS um, contract uh, settlement, which is still going to have to be ratified by the members. Uh, but um, let's talk about what's in it, okay? Uh, so, okay. yeah. So, um, one of the things that uh, you mentioned, and I know was a real issue, was the heat. Uh, speaking of which, 
and mm-hmm. the heat in trucks that have no fans and no air conditioning. It's really hard to imagine what it must be like to be one of those in one of those brown boxes uh, in this kind of weather. So what did the Teamsters win on that issue? They won. They won. I mean, for the immediate fleet, the, the old fleet that's running around right now, they they won fans and air vents. For the new fleet, starting January first, everything's going to be air conditioned, including in the back. Mm-hmm. The back is even worse than the cab. Right. I bet. In so many words. Right. And speaking of conditions in the cab, they've also won some things having to do with AI, which we've been talking. We just talked about a lot on this show. Um, right. and, and monitoring, uh, what was that? That was basically putting a curb on the monitoring that, the, that you, you can't track them every every single second of the day in so many words that, uh-huh. the, that, the, that uh, you know, the company has, has limits or will have limits. Okay. Um, and, of course, probably, you know, the biggest part of this agreement is the money. So what what's, mm-hmm. what's the money going to be? The money is an immediate big raise for the part-time workers and, even more importantly, a jump of many of those part-time workers, called the 22-4 workers, to full-time status. So that would jump them from currently about 16 bucks an hour, first to 21 bucks plus a $1.50 signing bonus, $1.50 an hour signing bonus. That's immediate. And then once they become full-timers, they jump to the full-time scale, and top of scale on the full-timers is going to be $49 an hour. Wow. Plus benefits, of course. $49 an hour. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's That's not to say they're immediately all going to get that, but they're going to get a big bump. How long do you have to to work at UPS to get $49 an hour? Do you know? Um, No, I don't know right off the top of my head, unfortunately. I can tell you that the part-timers are half, are half the comp- are half the uh, workers in the Teamsters represent. Right, and that's so, a question I had because there's thousands and thousands of workers. They're adding 7,500 jobs. They're converting 7,500 part-time jobs into full-time jobs, but that leaves a tremendous number of part-timers who will still be part-timers. Isn't that true? Yes, it will. At 7,500 now, 22,000 more over the life of the contract, and the point that, and then, and then, promises. Many of the part timers are also these twenty-two-four guys, so you're going to see them also be bumped up as well. I can't give you the number; it wasn't in the, it wasn't in the statement. What's twenty-two-four? What do you mean? That's uh, these are the these are the ones who are um, who are basically the the you well part timers in so many words, just part timers by another by another name. Okay. They, you know, they have erratic schedules. That's another thing. The schedules are going to be less erratic. They oh. have erratic schedules. They sometimes work on, a couple of hours on, a couple of hours off, things like that. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and, and another big win uh, seems to be the end of a two-tier wage system. Yes. That was the, that was the big win for those guys. So those guys are, those two tiers are going are to go. Okay. Almost immediately. So we'll have one unified uh, pay scale for uh, mm-hmm. all of the full-time workers, right? Right, right. And there'll be a lot more full-time workers, too. Right. And the point, if if people don't understand what two-tier is, is two-tier immediately divides the workforce with some workers making much more money than others for doing the same work. And it creates a lot of mm-hmm. divisions within the union. Um, it creates a lot of division with the 
Not just within the, within the union, but within the community, too. Okay, great. Well, we're out of time. Uh, we've been talking to Mark Grunberg with Washington Window on Workers, and I'm Judy Ansel. Hi, everyone. I'm Duncan Crabtree-Ireland, National Executive Director of SAG-AFTRA. And I'm Ben Whitehair, Executive Vice President of SAG-AFTRA. Welcome to the SAG-AFTRA podcast. We are thrilled to be joined today by SAG-AFTRA President, Fran Drescher. Welcome, Fran. Thank you. Oh, I'm the big guest of the day, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. Oh, thank and for many you. reasons, but <laughs> but not the least of which, because on July 13th, SAG-AFTRA's negotiating committee and board members voted unanimously to issue a strike order against the studios and streamers. This historic decision was made after the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, the AMPTP, refused to reach a deal that adequately addressed the issues most important to the union's members. Fran, can you explain to members who are maybe just hearing about this part of our proposal, what exactly is the revenue share proposal and why do you think it's so important? Well, I'm the daughter of a systems analyst, and although I didn't make my career in it like my dad did, I have that acumen of seeing systems. And uh, I kept looking at how the business model changed within the industry and how the old contract really didn't service the new business model. Because when I was doing the nanny back in the 90s, the business model upon which the old contract is predicated was about longevity for a series. So you would, if you had eyeballs, if you had ad dollars, the show would stay on the air. Some shows stayed on the air 10, 11 years. I, at some points, some years did 28 episodes a season, never less than 22. And so it was all about this, having a lot of episodes, having a lot of seasons, and then having this long tail of revenue that included, you know, syndication and cable and around the world. And everybody above the line shared in this wealth as the studio continued to sell the uh, production to different outlets. We all got a little piece of the pie up and down the ladder. And uh, it was a very healthy environment. And to this day, there are people who were guests on the show, who had small parts on the show, a few lines, that are still getting residuals from the airings of The Nanny in a myriad of different formats that have completely gone away with the advent of streaming. If you get onto a streaming series, whether you're a guest, whether you have a small part, whether you're a regular, it doesn't really matter. You are in a vacuum and you only will get maybe six, eight, 10 episodes. That's what they call a season. Then they'll do three, maybe four seasons to a series and call it a limited series. Whereas, you know, we would go as long as it could go and it's still going, it's still going. So 
that changes the name of the game. Because if you're looking to get revenue sharing in the form of residuals based off of how much that show is seen worldwide, your income is going to be drastically compromised because you're making two-thirds less in episodes. You're making two-thirds less in uh, seasons, and it has no tail. It doesn't go anywhere because it's in this vacuum box. And they could take it off the menu. They could put it on the menu. There's zero transparency. They decide which tier your show goes on, and they throw you a couple of bucks for that. But you're not doing enough episodes. You're not having enough seasons upon which the old contract was completely based off of. So what happens when the ongoing and long tail of the old business model has been chopped down to only a third, let's say, with no continuing earnings after it's taken off the menu within the streaming platform. We have to, as a union, follow the money. The money is in subscriptions. That's why they invented limited series. And they're programming, they're training viewers to get used to shorter seasons and shorter episode buys. And I know a lot of people that have loved many shows on these platforms and are miserable when they go off. They end so soon. And the amount of episodes is so short. And the whole thing is a big frustration. But the reason why they do it that way is because their algorithms show that the subscriptions begin to plateau at a certain point. And the name of the game for shareholders and Wall Street is how many subscribers you have. So if it turns out that at 10 episodes it plateaus, and after three or four seasons, it's not going to do any more heavy lifting, then we have to move over to another flying dragon and distract the regular subscribers from being upset that their favorite show just went off because they tantalize them with another big star or another big director or another super-duper special effects show. And so that new show starts doing the heavy lifting again. Now, these CEOs, all of their bonuses are predicated off of stock market and, and shareholder performance. So when you've got your eye on that, and the bottom line is, how much money are those shareholders going to make? So more people keep buying shares in our company, and more money keeps coming in, they're not looking at us. Nobody up there is thinking, how is this smaller model for series going to impact the performer who is the foundation of our entire business model? What's going to happen to them? They don't think that way at all, which frankly came as a little bit of a surprise for me. But now 
people forewarned me. They said, you know, they're all nice at lunch, but when you get in the negotiating room, they're like a completely different animal. And I live to experience that. So at the end of the day, our union members have to get into the subscriptions pocket just in order to have the level of revenue sharing that we used to have with the old business model or we're systematically being squeezed out of our livelihood. So with that, Fran, Duncan, thank you so much for being here and I'll see you on the picket line. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks, Ben. And thank you, Fran. And thanks, Duncan. I'll see you out there. Yes, indeed. Hey, fellow workers. My name is Kim Sieber. Welcome back to the Alberta Worker Podcast. This is episode one of season two, and I would like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting from the territory of the Nitsitapi. Our guest for the first episode of our second season is Juan Estevez, who is a terminally online socialist cat dad. We are very happy to welcome you on board, Juan. Thank you for joining the Alberta Worker Podcast. Thanks for having me, Kim. I was born in Colombia, in the capital city of Bogota. We left Colombia and moved to the United States when I was four. My dad had friends that lived in London, Ontario, so he decided to to go there. We only lived there for like three to four years, and he struggled to find like full-time work, so he started looking elsewhere. He did like a few trips out to Alberta. He like Lethbridge, it's like kind of close to Calgary, it's close to the mountains, it was affordable. I graduated from CCH, um, and then I went to university at U, at U of L. They have like a double major in new media and marketing. I like applied to like Vancouver Film School and the Art Institute of Vancouver. I got accepted to both, but uh, my parents couldn't afford to to let me to go there, and so it was just kind of like a, a compromise: do it, but then stay close to home. The finance degree, like there was some interesting stuff about it, trading stocks and stuff like that, and I thought I could get rich and make money. Went through the program. I kind of, I sort of like really like learning more of a, like our capitalist system and just like how terrible it is. Um, even in like class discussions, it's just like all about the the bottom line profit dollars for them. Um, didn't care about anything sure. else along the way. They didn't care about rights or, or any of that stuff. Uh, like a no, bottom no, line. Social use. Yeah, bottom line, just wanting to make money. They were all anti-union from like a knowledge standpoint. That was kind of like a, a radicalizing process uh, for me. I don't think that was like necessarily put me like into like the socialist camp, but it definitely like turned me away from like more like right wing stuff. Right. And so I, I'd say like I definitely like shifted more into like the center, kind of more of like a like a liberal, maybe like social democrat by like the time I graduated. Because, you know, I kind of believe that like there's a way of like making this work within the system. There's like there's a path forward to like improving the world and making it better. And then after I graduated, I moved to Montreal because uh, my partner got into McGill to go do their mass her master's there okay. uh, in neuroscience. I was like kind of progressing along and I was also studying for my CFA, which is Chartered Financial Analyst. Um, it's like a certificate, kind of like the like an equivalent certification for like finance as like accountants, like accountants do a CPA finance the CFA. I took a course to kind of study up for that. And I was scheduled to write my level one exam. It was either May or June of 20, 
20. And as we all know, the the world kind of stopped in March of that year. My like exam was like rescheduled indefinitely. So that kind of, it literally killed like any interest I had in like pursuing that career. So I'm still like in the same sales job because I've been kind of like moderately successful at it. And it's been like, it's paid well enough. And ever since COVID happened, it's been remote. Before the pandemic started, I did try to unionize um, my workplace. Like there are people there for like 15 plus years who started at 30K and we're still at 30K. Um, and it's a billion dollar company. There's no reason they can't pay us more money. Um, they report massive profits every quarter. Sure. <laughs> and so I started kind of thinking of ways of like, how could that happen? I did like researching. It turns out Quebec has like the most union friendly legislation in the entire continent because all you need is 50% plus one of uh, members to like sign the union card. Right. If you get like 35% of people to sign, then you can go through the voting process. Okay. Um, but when I talked to the, to like the UFCW rep that I reached out to, they prefer to just do the 50% plus one because then that's just. There's no lobbying. It doesn't give the organizations like time to like union bust. I did get like a handful of people to like sign the card. The people I got like were all like the same tenured as me. We like came in like at the same time and we were like friends, you know, we like went out after work all the time. We talked when I started kind of trying to get more tenured reps on board. They were extremely hesitant. They didn't really want to get involved. They didn't want to sign something. One of them told me that someone previously had tried and the organization found out and the union busted. Then the the pandemic happened. Uh, we all were in remote, and then we I never really got to see other people in person again, and so I didn't really have a way of like trying to organize with them anymore, right? Um, because I can't like exactly like send out an e- an email within like the the company or message people on Teams saying, "Hey, do you want to unionize?" That's because the company has the ability to like monitor all that. And you want to do it like secretly so they don't catch wind of it. That was kind of where it, it kind of died there. Organization effort. And then we moved back to we moved back to Alberta. We chose to move to Calgary after my partner finished her uh, her masters. The Alberta Worker Podcast is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Here's a jingle from another member of the network. Hello, I'm Dave Lehigh, host of the podcast show, the IAM One Forty One Report. You can find the show on the Anchor Network or Spotify. The 141 Report is part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. You can find over 80 channels of union-related specific programs. Here you can learn more about unions and the labor movement. Be sure to visit us at laborradionetwork.org or hashtag laborradiopod. Once again, that's hashtag laborradiopod. And now, back to the show. You're listening to the Alberta Worker Podcast. When I moved back to Alberta, moved to Calgary, I was kind of interested in in getting into into politics because I just kind of wanted to to try and create a better world moving forward. Because there was, I mean, the pandemic clearly showed that there were a lot of things wrong. Kind of like really like exposed and put things into like a microscope and magnified everything that was worse than before. I wanted to like get involved somehow, and and politics kind of seemed like an opportunity to do that, especially because there was like a an a looming election in 2021. So I got involved with the NDP because because at that point, that was the most left-leaning party there was, even though like they're not really a left-wing party, but that was as close as you can get to one. And they were doing decently in the, like, kind of in the polls. Jigmeet kind of seemed like a charismatic leader in it. You know, it gave like the illusion of maybe they had a chance of, 
of forming at least like a, a minority government or at least putting like a, a big dent in things. So, you know, ran the that ran the campaign with with little to no support from the from the party came third kind of as you know expected conservatives won i did have like the best ndp performance in that riding since i think it was like 88 87 that's awesome Um, yeah well great i appreciate you sharing that experience with me very uh very enlightening all right if people are interested in following the alberta worker you can find us on uh, facebook twitter linkedin We can also visit our website at albertaworker.ca. Thank you, Juan, for being a guest today. And thank you to everybody for tuning in. And as always, solidarity. Solidarity. Thank you, Kim. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Just a small sample of the programs aired over the last week on nearly 200 Labor Radio and podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active, and of course, stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show. We'll see you next week.